I'm David. Good to see you all back here. Happy New Year. Happy greeting period. <laughs> Always love the weekend before Dean's State. I say facetiously. These three weeks, while you're struggling through your exams, we thought, what should we talk about? We're going to talk about the letter, Paul's letter to Titus. Paul's letter to Titus. I'm going to read the first nine verses. I'm really just going to talk about verse nine. I'm going to read, I'm going to read the first nine verses to provide a little context. So follow along with me as I read God's word. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, and hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict him. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, bless this your word. Open our eyes to it. Help us to understand it rightly. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen. So again, I'm going to focus in on verse 9. Why verse 9? I mean, so Paul's letters to Titus, we call this a pastoral epistle along with First and Second Timothy. Paul wrote these later on in his ministry. At this point, he's on what we call the fourth missionary journey. We infer he left, he got out of prison in Rome, went on another missionary journey. Because we see here he'd gone to Crete with Titus. We see Titus. I mean, what do we know about Titus? He had stomach problems. We know that. Um, He was young. Um, He struggled with anxiety. There are a few things we know about Titus, but he was one of Paul's fellow believers, a younger person who went along with him and served in the faith. Uh, uh, And so Titus, he's left in Crete to help establish the church there. And Paul is farther on. He's gone to Nicopolis, another city. He's up in Albania, what's modern-day Albania. But we come here, and so he starts out with Titus. And we call it the pastoral epistles because Paul talks a lot in the pastoral epistles about things like the passage I just read. What are the qualifications of a leader in the church, an elder, an overseer, a bishop, depending how you translate these words. And he's laying that out. That's where he starts this letter. And the foundation that we have to start with in Titus is is this phrase, sound doctrine. So tonight I'm going to talk to you about everyone's favorite subject from Scripture, which is doctrine. (laughs) Doctrine. That's right. There's some some fans of doctrine um, in our midst. (laughs) So what is sound doctrine? That's my subject for tonight. First, I want to say what we believe matters. What we believe matters. Uh, I was thinking about this, you know, many years back, you know, I, it's like uh, I saw this phrase for the very first time called YOLO. <laughs> YOLO, yeah? YOLO. And I'm like, what is this, YOLO? And I looked it up, you know, Google, and uh, you only live once. And I assumed, I kid you not, I assumed that YOLO, like you only live once, that this was like the kind of thing you'd say like, 
you know, you only live once, so brush your teeth every night. You know, <laughs> you only live once, so like drive the speed limit. <laughs> like you only live once, uh, eat right, you know, go to school, um, you know, don't get drunk, stuff like that. No, I, I, I was mistaken. Um, I, I knew a guy, I knew a guy who in college, it's like this movie had come out, this is the true meaning of YOLO, I've determined. He, this, the movie had come out, and in this movie, there's a scene where it's like these guys went, and they lay down in the median of the road for the rush of, like, cars zooming by. And so he decided, like, this is a good idea. This is a good idea. And so he went out into the street. This doesn't have a tragic ending, thankfully. But, you know, he went out into the street, and he did that, the main highway, and he just lay down with a friend in the median of the road expecting this thrill. All that happened was cars slowing down and honking and getting out and yelling at him. Um, but it was that, that spirit, YOLO. So it's like, what we believe matters. You know, if you're like me, like some old dude, you hear YOLO and you're like, you think responsibility. Because that's your belief system, right, informing your interpretation of the world. If you're a college boy, you do something stupid, right? <laughs> you, you, you do something stupid. That's what you do, YOLO. I mean, so it's like, what we believe matters. What we believe matters. That's what doctrine is a, like, fancy church word for. Doctrine is teaching. That's the... The, the meaning of the word, what we teach and what we believe. And we live in a world marked by objective truth. You certainly, well, I don't know, at least the engineers in the crowd understand that, right? There is one right answer. I don't know, maybe not. But there is one right answer on those tests, the mathematicians and the physicists. It's a little fuzzier in the humanities. I was a history major. There's perhaps an infinite number of right answers, um, if you word it correctly. But it's like there is, there is objective truth. And what I, what I want to present to you, I don't know what you believe, but I want what we believe as Christian believers is there is objective truth about us. There is objective truth about us, about human nature, about the nature of the world, about our purpose, about our end, about our origins. There is something that we can believe. And a more serious example than the yellow example that I think about was a friend I knew who was a graduate student here and one of my grad student Bible studies. She's a professor now elsewhere. And she'd grown up, her parents were atheists. Her father's a very prominent academic on the University of California system. And uh, she was raised in a resolutely atheistic household. And when she was in college at Stanford, um, she had a friend who she's now married to, incidentally, um, who was a believer. And so she was reading the Bible and she approached it, presuming she was reading one of the Gospels. And from her perspective, the Gospels were you know, myths or man-made documents from, and from her assumptions from long after the life of Christ or something. She was reading through, and this was the clinching point for her, was it was the names of the 12 disciples. And many of them have the same names, right? Like there's more than one James, there's more than one Judas. Judas, especially confusing. That was the moment for her. This isn't made up. These were real people. They have those names, they share them because they're real people. This is an actual document describing something that happened. Right? Something that happened. So when we come, we come to this question of, like, how do we understand the world? What do we understand about it? See, this is what Paul says to Titus in verse 9, describing the person who would be a leader in the church. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. The trustworthy word. This is what we believe, that God's word, the Bible is trustworthy. We can have confidence in it that it teaches us truth, objective truth, about who we are. 
about where we come from, about where we're going. And this is, I mean, this is a bold claim, right? Not to understand it, sell it. It's a bold claim. It's not a small thing to say. And what, what are the implications of that? Like, how can we have confidence in God's word? How can we have confidence in the Christian faith? That we can say this, we trust, is speaking true. This, this is a moment for me in having to defend my Christian faith. I was in Princeton and Beijing back in 1999. And we were, I was on a, we were on a bus trip out to, I forget where, Great Wall or Ten Ferries or Marco Polo Bridge or somewhere. We'd gone some great place and we were coming back. Uh, in the bus, and it was nighttime, we were rolling through uh, Tiananmen Square, and I was, ha- I was trying to have this conversation with the teacher, you know, in my second year Chinese, um, about serious matters, you know, and uh, so Tiananmen Square at that time, uh, I mean, so things that are still there, so in the one end, there's the Forbidden City, old Imperial China, and in the middle, there's Mao's tomb, right, Communist China, and its heyday, and right at the southeastern corner, I don't know if it's still there, but what we were passing, there was a McDonald's, Right? Modern, like, capitalism. Jinji Faja. You know, economic development. That's what it was all about. Economic development. I remember saying to this teacher, it's like, this is what I thought. Because I was saying to her, like, they were all about, we got to get rich, which I understand. But I was saying, in America, we are rich. And yet we're not happy. We're rich. And we're free. But we struggle. That's what I was trying to say to her. She's like, well, we'll just worry about getting rich first. That was her answer. That's as far as we got. But this was my thought looking at Tiananmen Square there. It's like, so this was the, the older belief that failed China was the imperial system, right? And they got beaten up by the Europeans. And then they turned to communism, right? But communism made them poor and people starved by the millions. And so then now it's economic development, economic might, right? These are different belief systems moving through. I mean, capitalism's a better choice than Mao, frankly. So it's an, it's an upward trajectory. But we know that it's not sufficient. It's not sufficient. And so in, in Chinese classes, like, are you Christians? That was asked once. Like, is anyone religious? Because they were just looking to gen up controversy so that we would want to express ourselves in Chinese. <laughs> it worked. And so I was trying to explain. So I was trying to explain, like, why am I a Christian? This is what I had, I had to say. And the best I could come up with in Chinese was because I think the Bible explains it best. That was it. I wasn't even that eloquent, right? But that's, that's the best I could do. This, when I come to God's word, why do I trust it and teach it and rebuke people over it? As described here in, first, in Titus 1.9, why do I do that? Because it is right. It is dead on. This is my belief. It is dead on about who I am, about who you are, about our nature, about our struggles. That we are, in fact, sinners. That we need a savior. That that salvation was provided in God's son who died on our behalf. It's like it's what C.S. Lewis and Narnia calls the deep magic of the world in that allegorical context. It's like this is like the fundamental nature of human, that God put his own son to die on our behalf, to lay down his life for us. It is power coming from God's word to explain exactly who I am. Meet me where I was and show me the path of salvation. And it's rooted, it's rooted in truth. It's rooted in truth. And why do I say that? It's like first... Looking at this universe around me, this universe is marvelous. It's fine-tuned. It's designed just, just so that life can exist. So much so that physicists have to posit a multiverse. We're in the infinite number of universes. We're universes that must exist. We are in that exceedingly rare one, few, that could support life. 
God created the world. I see it in that God's word is founded on historical fact that has happened. These people, early Christians, when they said we trust this word, what they said, what they meant by that was this Jesus, he died and he rose again and we saw him and he walked with us and he taught us. And so we're going to go about preaching this very unexpected, very unpopular, very unlikely to succeed message. Not a message of you will get rich. When you go to heaven, you'll have many, many virgins to sleep with. Not a message of the gods, if you pay a certain amount in sacrifice, you will get what you want. No, this message is humble yourself. Recognize your sin. God died on a tree. Not he came with an army, but he died on a cross for your sins. This is a radical faith, a radical word built on historical truth. That's why I trust the word of God. That's why I come to it as someone who seeks to open up the word of God, that this is trustworthy in what it says. Uh, again, I, that's, if it, I don't want to downplay the radicalness of the Christian faith to believe that in our own present world, but I would encourage us to think, living as we do in Princeton, the pinnacle, let's just say, the very best university in the world, right? That's why we all came here, right? No, no peers, forget Oxford or whatever, Stanford, um, Cambridge, Massachusetts. Awesome school, so much knowledge, but people are just so foolish, as much as foolish as everyone else you find in the world. Actually, more foolish. This is my favorite story of this. A friend, dear friend from one of my grad Bible studies who was a postdoc, she was on a bus, uh, you know, one of the university buses going uh, uh, you know, to the Woodrow Wilson School. That was the bus stop, I think. So she's on the bus, and there's these two undergraduate women, and they're talking. I mean, the one is very upset because she'd hooked up with this guy, and the guy hadn't, I guess it's the modern 21st century, hadn't texted her. Right, is that the thing people are supposed to do? Do you hook up? Anyway, that whatever that was, <laughs> right? That hadn't happened. That hadn't happened. My day was like you'd call or you'd drive by there. But anyway, it's like that hadn't happened, and she was very upset by this because she thought by like ha- hooking up, uh, you th- and then he, that should create an emotional bond. And so she, and it's like the bus driver. This is how my friend related it. The bus driver was just like, "Look, girl, like that's not how it works. <laughs> that's not how life is. Everyone knows that. Like you." You don't have sex with the guy in order to develop an emotional attachment, right? It's like that's been happening since the, the world began. And it's just like, it's like to my friend, it was this, and then she was engaging, talking to the, to the girls about her own experiences and so on. But it was just this moment of like that bus driver who's so much less education than you all do, has so much more wisdom, right? So much more wisdom. It's like, okay, here we are at Princeton. That's not enough. I mean, I'm glad some of you can build rockets that can go to the moon, or at least you understand the theory behind it, right? right? You can build bridges that won't fall down. You can, you can write carefully researched, properly sourced papers. I can only hope not plagiarized, right? You, you have good footnotes. You read, you dig through those footnotes and make sure it's true what you're citing. You can do all that. That's not the same thing as having wisdom or understanding truth about human existence. And so it's like the word, when we say the word is trustworthy, well, yes, it, it teaches truth, and it teaches truth about who we are. And so that word doctrine, we've got to save that word doctrine from how fusty that sounds, right? I don't know, figure out, you smart marketing types, like what's a sexy way to, to, to describe doctrine that people will grapple with. No, you, you just can't do that. It's like we've we got to learn and we've got to know. 
It's something, this is the last point I want to make. Doctrine is something you see here that we instruct others in. This is his encouragement to Titus. He's to choose men who are able to give instruction in sound doctrine and to rebuke those who contradict it. Doctrine is something worked out in public. This is hard, you know. It's like we live in a Disney culture. We live in a Disney culture. My, my, my daughter, Sophia, who's four, just loves, I mean, it's like Disney just has her, like, in its target so well. It's like the first time, she must have been two, wandering through Barnes & Noble, and there was, like, a Frozen display, a poster. She had no exposure to Frozen. She was just stopped, transfixed, right? <laughs> she, she, and she said, who's that? You know, it's like Anna, Princess Anna, Princess Elsa. It's like in Disney, I love Disney. I love Disney. It's fun. But, like, it has a very clear message. as a belief system. It's like you can be whatever you want. It's like believe in yourself. Look into your heart. <laughs> it's nice. I kind of wish that was all true. I kind of wish you could be whatever you want. Like I, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna save you a lot of pain in your twenties as millennials. Like that's just not true, right? <laughs> you're not a special snowflake. I mean, you may achieve amazing things. You may achieve amazing things, but you're not a special snowflake, and you can't do everything you want to do. <laughs> everything you can imagine. So there are all sorts of competing philosophies, right, that we run into and that we're operating on. The one at, at Princeton, I mean, it really is this, uh, like, I'm going to do it my way. So, 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 so thinking, thinking to my friend, whose parents were atheists, and when she, she came to faith, reading the scripture and recognizing that it wasn't what she'd been taught to believe some myth, but was actually a true account of who Jesus was and what he had done. This friend of mine, it's like when she had children, she'd always gone along better with her parents than with her in-laws, because her in-laws were from Texas. They were red staters. She would always say that with a sort of like a, you know, tone of, (laughs) you know, revulsion. I was like, oh, I grew up in a red state area. But, you know, it's like she grew up on the California coast. And so culturally speaking, she aligned more with her parents than with her in-laws. But when she had children, it's like her parents were baby boomers, and their philosophy was pursuing their own personal desires. That was their underlying philosophy. And so when it came to grandkids, grandkids slowed them down. They had also a cult of like like youth, you know, they went out like bike riding. So grandkid, this is what they said, like that, that'll slow us down. Like they weren't interested, right? Just a little bit hanging out with grandkids, but helping or serving, that wasn't there. They were focused on me, on hobbies. And her in-laws, who were Christians, oil men from Texas, you know, oil people from Texas, um, they were focused on that service. Who am I? What does God have to say about human nature? Is it like pursue your own bliss? It really isn't. It's like do what you should do. Do what God is calling to you. It's love others sacrificially. Fundamentally, that is Jesus' example to us. Love others sacrificially. It just so happens, FYI, that that leads to a lot of happiness. I mean, studies show you've got to work for a higher purpose. You've got to care for other people. Right? But like right in the moment when you're serving someone sacrificially, by definition, it's a sacrifice. Maybe there's long-term reward, but by definition, it's a sacrifice. It's like, it can be very subtle. Like, what is the worldview we're living in? Is it, I'm following my own bliss? It's very hard as a student because you are just pursuing your own personal academic struggles. It's, it's like, it's a sharp reverse for so many when you hit a job because then it's just, or even when you hit grad school and you have an advisor because then it's like you're serving someone else's desires. That's why they're paying you. 
But it's like, are, is that what we're doing? Is that what you're doing? Are you just pursuing your own desires? Or are you pursuing God's? It's like doctrine, we got to push and pull over this. If we don't, if we don't dive into scripture, if we don't dive into the riches of who God is, who Jesus is, what's our nature as human beings? What does God call us? How has he provided salvation? What has he called us into as a church? What does that mean? How should we run it like in Titus? What kind of systems of accountability? How should we work through conflict? Where is this all headed? If we don't dive into the depths and the riches of God's teaching, sound doctrine, if we don't read the whole counsel of the word of God, there's a phrase I love from my dad, preaching the whole counsel, all of it, not just the easy stuff, then we will just ever so subtly actually be following the philosophies of the world or of our own sinful hearts to our own destruction. There is truth. Let's engage with it. If you don't believe it, let's engage with it so you know it is what you're not believing in in the Christian faith. You know it is. You know what it, why it is that so many millions of people, so much across the world, across cultural boundaries, across national boundaries, through so many, in so many times and places, people have devoted their lives, laid down their lives, literally laid down their lives for this word, which they consider trustworthy. This is, this is a moment for me. I grew up in a very, uh, doc, a church very devoted to sound doctrine. And, you know, whereas most of the church is just, people are just kind of like, give me just a little bit, just the core truths and like back off. That's sort of our default, I think, in American culture in the Christian church. No, my church was hardcore. You know, it was a, it had been a grad student Bible study. Like, we were very careful about our doctrine. And when we erred, it was more in, like, the direction of being a Pharisee and self-righteous. It's actually a hard reality when we talk about doctrine. You know, the vast majority may not really care all that much, but there's always the, de- the determined minority who do care, sometimes, like, seem to care to use it as a game or as a weapon, all right? So depending on who you are and where you are, you have to struggle with different sins. But this is, so for me, when I came to college, you know, I had the sense, it's like, oh, we'd spent so much time arguing the fine points of doctrine, Calvinism and Arminianism, you know, just to use the, one of the most popular. I mean, I knew, I, I knew the fine points of all sorts of doctrinal disputes. And I was just like, oh, let's just take it easy, right? Does that really matter? Like, how deep do we need to go with God's word? Let's just like the controversial stuff that makes people angry. It's not really what I believe, but I kind of had that feeling, right? It's like it would be nice to just sort of lighten up, not argue so much. And I just had this, this is, this, this is how I want to end, just the story of the power of sound doctrine. So a key thing emphasized in scripture is that God is sovereign. Absolutely. God is in control. And there are harder doctrinal discussions that come out of people that, that, that doctrine on, uh, of the sovereignty of God, like predestination, which people love to fight over. And so I was kind of like, oh, let's just back off from that. And I had this realization when I was in college. It was like so many of my friends, it was like things wouldn't go well for them, and they were just devastated by that. They were, it was like they were angry at God because things hadn't gone their way. And I remember just finding that strange. I mean, I was, very, I was just as unhappy as they were when things didn't go their way, but I didn't have quite that anger over it. I'm like, why is that? And it's like, it had, uh, one thing I think about is just reading through Ezekiel. I'd read through Ezekiel when I was a teenager. There's just this, I mean, the, the prophets can be hard. 
in places. These cycles of God's wrath and anger and judgment and then forgiveness. Like it's tough, right, for the average Christian to enter into. But it's like working through that, I realize that God's power. God is in control. I will follow him come what may. That is where my heart should be. That's where it ultimately will be by the work of his spirit. It doesn't matter what happens in this life. In Ezekiel, God, Ezekiel has to do all these terrible things as a sign of God's judgment. He has this vision of God's glory departing the temple and God's judgment falling on the people of Israel. It's the sense of I will persevere. I will persevere in following God. And that's, that had been imbued in me, and I'd seen that. And that is so liberating. This is uh, just a moment. But I remember seeing it. It was like my, my parents had moved to Indianapolis. And uh, I'd, I'd gone out that summer uh, to help them settle in. And my mother, like, first week out there, had a car accident. car was totaled. She was actually my car. Um, she was in the car and, like, you know, someone tried to cross the road inappropriately and the truck swerved. And, you know, she was watching it as it was about to slam into her, thinking to herself as she told me later, oh, no, not David's car. You know, and I'm like, Mom. I don't really care about my car. <laughs> you know, it's like, I can, you can replace cars, you can't replace mothers. And, uh, and so she was there. I found her in the hospitals before cell phones, before I owned it. It's not before cell phones, before I owned a cell phone, or my mother owned a cell phone. And, uh, and I went to visit her in the hospital, and there was a lady at the church, and my mother was there comforting the lady from the church who was sent there to comfort her. Right? And that's because this lady was so broken up, you know, it's like my... My parents had just moved there, and my dad was the pastor, you know, in the car accident. He's like, Indianapolis, you know, terrifying suburban environment where, you know, you, you risk your life every day to go to the grocery store. Not actually true. It's a wonderful, wonderful place. Um, but it's like, it's like, why is my mother fearless in the face of death, right? Why? I'd say this is because she knows sound doctrine, specifically that God is in control. She understands that, not, intellect, not just intellectually, but in her heart. To know sound doctrine is freedom. It's salvation for your soul, yes, but it is freedom from bondage to all this that we're seeking that's empty and worth, uh, we're worthless. It opens your eyes to the truth. This is why I would, why I would encourage you to read God's word. It is trustworthy. It is transformative. Doctrine is worth knowing. It's worth knowing. All right? Build a bridge that doesn't fall down, amen, but understand who you are before the living God and what his plan is for your life. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, your word. Lord God, it is, it is, it is challenging to seek after truth. It's challenging, Heavenly Father, to uh, struggle over matters of um, purpose and faith, spiritual questions. It's challenging. It's hard, Heavenly Father, to live in a world that is fallen with hearts that are broken, broken by sin, broken by suffering. Heavenly Father, I pray that your word its truth would pierce through to our hearts. I pray that for myself, that day by day, each one of us would be learning from your word. I pray for those who aren't believers, who don't know what they believe tonight who are here. I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would reveal the truth of your word to them. Heavenly Father, for those of us who are Christians, I pray, Heavenly Father, you would keep us from being slothful and lazy about our doctrine, about our teaching. Heavenly Father, help us to learn, learn it and to live it out. 
And Heavenly Father, keep us from making it solely a private matter that we don't discuss with others, that we don't teach to others, that we don't, when appropriate, rebuke one another over. Heavenly Father, let your truth be something we are passionate about. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.